Welcome to CinemaScope, a new podcast from True Story FM. Hi, I'm Andy Nelson, co-host of the Next Real Film podcast and Movies We Like. As a passionate movie lover, I've always relished exploring the diverse landscape of cinema. And when you look closer at the taxonomy of genres, subgenres, and film movements, you see an intricate web of interconnections and influences. This complex cinematic family tree spans only 125 years. So how did styles as diverse as the French New Wave, New Queer Cinema, and Ozploitation emerge? What cultural, economic, and technological forces sculpted these styles? And what hidden threads unite them all as part of the same fantastic art form? Those questions sent me on a journey to explore each style and trace their impacts, all to better understand the bridges between different styles. And that led me here to CinemaScope. In each episode, I'll be exploring one particular genre, subgenre, or film movement in depth, inviting expert guests to help us all better understand what defines that style, how it came to be, and what branches it, in turn, influenced on this big cinematic family tree. For example, how did German Expressionism shape American film noir? What's the difference between Westerns, Spaghetti Westerns, and Brazilian Nordesterns? We'll examine the economic and socio-political forces that birthed categories like black exploitation, and we'll spotlight visionary films and directors key to the evolution of different styles. So join me as we explore the complex forces that shape film's evolution and appreciate the diverse creativity possible in its relatively brief history. Let Cinemascope be your guide to understanding this art form we cherish how its genres blend, bounce off each other, and advance a rich tapestry of storytelling innovation. Together, we'll gain a deeper appreciation for this wondrous, shape-shifting medium. Our journey begins soon. Be part of this adventure by subscribing to CinemaScope today. The trailer to Insurrection, Andy, I think, again, this violates uh, the story. Well, yeah, I guess the question is... You know, what would they have done if they weren't violating the story? It's a tricky, I don't know. I, I, I can see your point, but at the same time, I feel like the trailer, to a certain extent, can only be as good as the movie it's pitching. And I just feel like, you know, I, I, I'm I not sure how they would have sold this story in a different way. What's How would you have done it? Well, I'll tell you how I would have. I'm glad you asked, Andy. <laughs> uh, I think that, that there are a, a couple of stories in here, and I the problem is they gave them all up, and I don't think they should have. I think the, the they should have stuck with either the forced migration story and and left out the reason the the fountain of youth story leave that out leave it out we don't we didn't need it that's the whole function of the crew is to discover what this mystery is all about but the trailer the action it is it can all hinge on the forced migration story i think it would have been great and still give us something of a mystery and still celebrate the why why are they doing this why is this a a violation of the prime directive why are we going to force all these people off this planet that's that we want to know that we want to know why the federation is is against its its flagship uh you know uh crew and i think they i think that's they gave that up in the trailer and i i think that was a mistake yeah i agree 
I agree with you. I do feel that the movie itself misses out on a lot of those points. Um, So I would argue that I think the film could have done a better job with some of those elements, particularly the Federation aspect of it. I don't want to, we're not, we're just looking at the trailer right now. But from the trailer, yes, I feel like this seems like an interesting battle happening between the mission of the Federation and uh, and the crew of the Enterprise. And um, but there's, you know, we're tying it into this whole Fountain of Youth concept that they have found on this planet in the Briar Patch, as they uh, have described this nebula. I don't know. I, I guess I struggle with the nature of it. I, I My recollection of watching this trailer was, well, it kind of looks like it looks kind of like an episode. It looks kind of like something that they would do on, on the TV show. And that was kind of about it. It didn't really get me excited. I knew I'd go see it because it was Star Trek, but I, I just recall not being very excited by this one. Yeah, well, I, you know, I'm with, I think, I think a lot of people are with you. Um, and, <laughs> uh, but I think in terms of the trailer, in terms of the art and craft of the trailer, I feel like they just, they, they missed an opportunity to really offer us a mystery. Uh, and that's okay. I think some of the humor is okay, but most of it is just energy and, and, uh, you know, frenetic action. And in some cases, they go to the score the classic, you know, the Goldsmith score, uh, and the dialogue doesn't fit the second half of the trailer. And I think that mismatch really messes with a potential dramatic build. I think they chose the wrong music f- cue for the trailer. So in in terms of does the trailer actually deliver on being its own little, you know, art project to sell the movie, I think they missed a lot of really easy uh, you know, slow pitches that that would have made this a better trailer, and they they, uh, I think this fits in a long line of bad Star Trek trailers. That seems to be the case, doesn't it? That seems to be where we're at with the trailers yeah. for this uh, franchise. I mean, well, I, I I shouldn't say that. I I think that my recollection of the first Contact trailer is that I enjoyed it. I just feel like you know they revealed a lot of stuff that they didn't necessarily need to reveal, but it was exciting me to me. That's I guess that's what I'm saying. It was a bad trailer. In okay. that they revealed things they shouldn't have revealed. But it was an exciting trailer. Okay, I'll, I'll give you that. And so what you're saying is this is a bad trailer and you also didn't care. Exactly. <laughs> it is human nature to wonder what it would be like to never grow old. To experience utter peace and harmony. And it is also human nature for some of us to want what we do not have. Alert! Well, he's trying to remove the headpiece. Do not delay the countdown. And for others to stand in their way. We are participating in the outright theft of a world. They were never meant to be immortal. Who the hell are we to determine the next course of evolution for this people? Radiation coming from the planet's rings continuously regenerates our genetic structure. We're only moving 600 people. We'll be able to help billions. This is the moment we've planned for so many years. How many people does it take before it becomes wrong? This is The Next Reel, everybody. I'm Pete Wright, and that there is Andy Nelson. Hey, hey, hey. And we spoil movies. Tonight on the show, Jonathan Frakes is back at the helm with the third in the Next Generation Treks. In defense of the Prime Directive, it's 1998's Star Trek Insurrection. Before we get into that, you should learn more about us at thenextreel.com. Subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast app or follow us on Twitter and Facebook at The Next Reel. And if you have enjoyed this show and are interested in supporting our ongoing work investigating great film, 
please consider a regular donation through our Patreon page. You'll get to join our back-channel conversations on Slack, listen to the members-only weekend show, and get better chances of being part of our Listener's Choice episodes. Just head over to patreon.com slash thenextreel. Why are people so offended by this movie, Andy? I, You know what? I I feel like they th- there's just a lot of hyper-critique of this film that is undeserved. This, yes, I agree. There is some dumb stuff going on in here. But if we go back to what I said it, it, very early on in our discussion of the films, that it's possible that this may be uh, one of those inconsequential Trek films. And that may be okay. That may be okay, but it also might be one of the problems. You know, that might be why people are disinterested in pursuing this uh, franchise because they have films like this that are like, you know what, I'm not enough of a Trek fan to go out and watch another one of their movies. I'll watch the one with the whales. I'll watch the one with the Borg. But that's about it. I'm not going to jump into just watching all their movies because of, of films like this that just feel like, eh, it's a very meh film is how I felt. Um, I didn't hate it, uh, but I didn't love it. I I get that. I is it really worse than Generations? I feel like that's where we're going to land. I want to. It's not okay. Oh, thank God. I my recollection of it was that it was worse than it was. Okay. It's not as bad as I remember. It's not. Uh, but it's not. Um, you know, it doesn't top First Contact. No, no, and I don't think I. I think it'd be tough to find. I think there there may be a a hardcore somebody out there who who might try to make that case. It'd be a tough case to make. Um, Michael Pillar, who who wrote the screenplay, says that it, it's Heart of Darkness meets The Magnificent Seven, uh, and and he says, continuing, sometimes you just can't make that kind of thing work. <laughs> that the structure just doesn't hold up, and I feel like. I actually like this movie more than he does to hear him talk about it. And he wrote the damn thing, Andy. I felt like he was just being dismissive of it a little bit because he was aiming for something that he didn't quite hit. And I can certainly see that. Like, I I feel like there's an interesting premise going on here. And I just, I my issue that I've been finding with some of these uh, Next Generation films is that these guys, um, time after time, they keep bringing on all the people from the next generation to make the movies. And I feel like they have had a hard time stepping out of their box. Even listening to uh, Jonathan Frakes talking about this, he said, you know, we, that we really wanted to tell another story that, you know, something that the fans would really love. And I feel like they're working so hard at, at, at pleasing the fan base that they're not looking for a good story outside of potentially outside of kind of what the norm is and delivering something that's as exciting as what Nicholas Meyer had been bringing to the franchise when he was making the film. So what makes this a terrible story, a non, you know, sort of a, a failure of Trek? I mean, we deal with the prime directive. We deal with these massive um, sort of moral and ethical uh, decisions. We've got a, a hero captain leading his crew in protection of of a defenseless people. Um, this this is very much, uh, you know, it's well-trod territory from the show. Uh, you know, where does it, where does it fall apart? I think where it falls apart is the, uh, the way that they feel they need to um, stick with all of the characters and what the characters um, worlds had been back from the show. 
I don't mind seeing Troy and um, and uh, Riker getting back together. I I thought that was kind of uh, nice. You know, they they uh, when was that? Like way early in the show. Yeah, when they were kind of a thing. Well, it was even um, because it was before the show. I mean, they ga- they came back together uh, on the Enterprise in episode one, having already had and broken up a relationship. Oh well, there you go. So I. It's you know so there's stuff like that there's there a lot of the stuff with data there's just a lot of stuff that I feel like they've explored so often throughout the show that um, and I understand they want to kind of you know um, ex- kind of continue to expand on the characters but at the same same time it's like you know we're in the world of cinema now you know do something a little bigger we don't need to just you know have the same sort of relationship tropes that you've been showing us over and over again on the show. And that's where I feel like I really ended up struggling with this film because I, I really like the antagonist. I, I like uh, Ruatho and this this whole conflict between the Sona and the uh, Baku people. I, I thought that was really interesting. I liked the whole concept of the, the Fountain of Youth. I, I liked the 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 battles I like the Federation kind of getting getting involved some in some capacity where it shouldn't have, um, but I I feel like we end up having to spend so much time with the next generation team doing kind of their own thing that I just I I get tired of it and I feel like if they had brought people in who didn't feel like we have to get this these these characters you know we have to give them chances to continue being who they were on the show. Uh, it, it just I don't know I, I just feel like that really slows the whole thing down and it become it just bogs it down it, it becomes less interesting because of it do you think there is any challenge here um, in the fact that the the cast the crew already had seven years on television which is uh, uh, it's a lot of water to carry compared to the three seasons uh, of the original series that that it feels like perhaps the original series movies and I, and I think you can make the same argument that you're making about some of these character tropes frankly about you know Spock and his journeys around logic and humanity I mean that's those are that's well-trod territory too but but do you do you think at all that this is sort of the curse of longevity that we knew these characters too well and maybe the writers did too yeah, I definitely think that there is something to that. I mean, look at what happened to the James Bond franchise. It finally kind of hit this wall of just absurdity when we got to Pierce Brosnan. And as much as I love him as an actor, I just feel like his James Bond films ended up being kind of the weakest links in the chain. And they're just very frustrating because of how um, you know over the top they ended up feeling they had to be to kind of continue doing more than what they had done before. And then when they finally rebooted it and said, hey, let's just start afresh and just start at the beginning and just, you know, make it all over again. And they went to Daniel Craig with Casino Royale. It's like, this is what we needed. We needed kind of that fresh start. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I think there is something to that. These guys have had seven uh, seasons of TV shows. That's, I, I don't know how many hours, you know, a, a That's lot. like 178. Of I mean, it's it's yeah, ridiculous. a lot of hours. Plus the, the two previous films, all before this, to kind of build on this, uh, you know, and, and kind of feel like, yeah, we need to, we need to continue Data's story arc. We need to continue Picard feeling lonely and, uh, you know, all of this stuff. And it it's hard. And that, I mean, I do think Nicholas Meyer, when he came in, Granted, he brought Khan back from from uh, the TV show, but I feel like he was okay breaking some eggs along the way. And I just feel like 
all of these people involved right now, Rick Berman uh, as the producer all the way down, they're afraid of breaking any eggs is kind of my impression that I get. It's like, oh, we got to be real careful with this. We got to be real careful with that. And they're just a little too too cautious with it. I, I think you're probably right. I am, am, I think, more in line with the fan service on this film. Uh, you know, I think this movie has a, a nice and, and sort of satisfying balance between the big moral and ethical questions that, of, of Picard's journey uh, and uh, the, you know, the rescue of these people. I have, definitely have problems with how it's executed, but generally, I think it's a, it, like you say, it's a good story. I think it's a good premise, and it's something that the Federation would be involved in. I think where it falls in line, you know, you you hear people who, uh, you know, critics say this is not, uh, this is not a Roddenberry thing. Like, Roddenberry would not have loved this, which is ironic, because Pillar, um, you know, wrote this as sort of a love letter to Gene Roddenberry, right? I mean, he, he really wanted this to be a, a film for Gene, and Pillar, if anyone, has enormous uh, sort of understanding in terms of credibility in the Star Trek universe. Uh, But it surprises me that if it's a a thing for Gene, that he has made it such a Federation military uh, endeavor. Like, there is a way to write around this uh, feeling like such a, a military film, right? The, this is the the Federation would get involved, but it certainly would not get involved and and be the you know the the instigator of this whole thing. They would they would separate two other warring parties, and I think that might have made for a, a certainly a more Trek friendly film. Uh, it, it also may have neutered it. Yeah, absolutely. I, I feel like, and again, Pillar, you know, was really trying to kind of tell a story that he felt Roddenberry would. Um, approve of and everything. And I feel like, yeah, he was being overly cautious with trying to guide it that way. And now my understanding is that he kind of falls under a lot of the same beliefs as Roddenberry. So it it is entirely likely that a lot of it was just his own beliefs that he was kind of putting into the film. But uh, I don't know. I just, I, I, I ended up watching this and going, well, that's, you know, it's an interesting two part uh, TV show. Uh, you know, it wasn't, but it wasn't anything like it didn't bring anything new to the table. It didn't, uh, you know, change anything for me that I was uh, really excited about in the franchise. It just was there. And I, I think that's, you know, I, I, I don't want to say that's its biggest crime, but to a certain extent, I do want to say that, you know, this, we're talking in film now. And that's, that's why I think I have a problem with this. And that's why I think a lot of people had a problem with this. You know, in the world of the movies, we're looking for something that's actually a little bigger than what we were getting on the TV show. That's an interesting thing you bring up. Cinematography is uh, Matthew Leonetti. And I I'm feel like this film, the challenge with this film is that it actually looks, it looks like a television show. I don't know yeah. why that is, uh, because the uh, uh, first contact did not to me. Like I was able to look at it, and it felt uh, it, it felt like a film. It felt cinematic, right? The texture, the grain, everything felt. This was so pristine. It, it felt like I might as well have been watching something on on television. It was too crisp, too clean. I felt like I could see too many of the sort of uh, the refinements and flaws in the in the sets. You know, it just didn't feel feel substantive to me. And I, I wonder if if that has an impact. Like it just it just feels too small. I absolutely agree. I mean I think some of that probably comes from the way that they were trying to make this planet look where it was very pastoral. It was very 
uh, just kind of, uh, you know, that it had that very kind of tranquil sensibility about everything. And every time we're seeing it, it just it, it just ends up feeling like it's really lit. You know, there's a lot of light here in this um, little corner of California where they're filming it. And it's very green and it's lush and it's like that's kind of it. Um, it didn't it didn't stand out in any way. I think in the previous film, you know, most of the exterior um, earth stuff that we had was night. Uh, maybe not all of it, but definitely a hefty chunk of it. And it, that allows for it to be a little more mysterious. We yeah. have little bits here, like when they when they the village is under attack and they have to start fleeing. Um, but um, that's and it's actually I I feel like it mostly hovers around the village. Like once they leave the village and we're like hiking along the trails and like you know Moses Picard is leading his his people. Uh, it it actually I thought it looked a little better outside of the village. So maybe it's the sets. I don't know. <laughs> I just want to note that I heard what you did just there. Uh, Moses, <laughs> Moses Picard, really, Andy? <laughs> did you like that? <laughs> you know, and I, I know I'm not the first to say this, but I have to say it out loud. Why is it that it's the Federation people leading the natives through the hills? <laughs> right. Don't like, you, how do they know where they're going? Right, right. I Clearly, what's too. so funny is the natives actually lead the Federation folks to the lake they couldn't apparently find the lake, but all of a sudden when it's time to really evacuate, no, we need to, but the Federation people need to be in charge. <laughs> right. That's just ridiculous. Uh, but you, you have a problem with Worf, I know. Oh, well, no, I don't, I don't really have a problem with Worf it's being a, there. I'm you, totally fine. You're anti-puberty, I guess. Anti-puberty, is that where you are? I, okay, this, this is an element that I, uh, going back to the script, I, I think it's interesting that the, the crew of the Enterprise start to kind of have these moments where they start feeling the effects of this kind of fountain of youth planet in which they're floating about. I think that is kind of interesting. I think it's a little cheesy when Picard starts doing the mambo. I'm not <laughs> necessarily a fan of Worf and his, his acne. Um, so it's a, it's a frustrating thing. Oh, and my biggest issue is that Jordy's get, Jordy gets his eyes back yeah. like in no time, but Picard doesn't grow a single hair on his head. <laughs> like what? Uh, it seems like between the two, the hair would definitely come before yeah. new eyes, new eyes know, grow. I, yes. <laughs> I, really had a, uh, I mean, it's a touching moment watching Jordy see his sunset or sunrise. It is. And time, LeVar like, oh. Burton does a great job. It's very sensitive. I felt all of the feelings. Oh, yes. I felt the feels. Yeah. Within those moments, I think that's where some of the um, uh, just the kind of the meandering comes from is, is the story, you know, spends time with our team as they kind of have these moments of of rejuvenation, it, it, this this is something I don't know if it stems from the direction or from the script, but I definitely felt it last time too when we would hang out on Earth on, on in the last film, and it's just there was no uh, there was no motivating force for the people. And anytime we're hanging out with the crew on the ship, it's just like, yeah, they're just doing the mambo and they're flirting in the bathtub and, <laughs> and none of it feels like, like there's no, uh, you know, you know, we're not, there's no ticking clock. And I feel like they're, they're losing track of the story when we go into those moments because we're losing the ticking clock. On the other hand, Andy, the aliens were lovely. 
Oh yes, right. Yes. And and we could start with uh, Ruafu and the and the you know the soma. Uh, I mean, I think they, uh, I think the skin pulling thing was really clever. I I really like them going in for their treatments and uh, and I think it, it their uh, evolution as the um, you know the plastic surgery loving uh, branch of the the people uh is actually really nice and you can see how the makeup has actually been uh, or is actually used to influence their evolution as a people uh over the the course of of this uh, film so they used science and became this horrible nasty uh deformed uh, manipulated people and the baku on the planet used faith and they just live and enjoy the natural environment uh, and they live 300 years and so both of these people who knew each other and were all families you know achieve the same ends they lived a really long time uh but the film also manages to to you know have a message buried in there that you know and i i think it's it wears it a little bit you know heavily on its sleeve but but it's a nice message and and i think it makes for a a, a nice reunion as well that you you just hope that that the you know the plastic surgery camp actually is able to get a break i thought they were great it looked good and it fit the narrative I'm going to uh, go out on a limb and say this, Pete, but I think that the Sona people, they're, I, I know it's technically not a different race than right. the, uh, the Baku, but I think just as they are, the Sona might be my favorite alien characters in all of Star Trek. Really? Andy, I, I think it's I think it's such a fascinating concept, and I love the makeup work. Yeah, and I just I like the the constants, the the plastic surgery and the treatments and everything. I just was constantly fascinated, and I just could not get enough of watching good old F. Murray Abraham and friends yeah. playing the Sona on screen. I just they're they're just brilliant. I think they're just absolutely fantastic. Oh, I'm so pleased to hear you say that. And it, you know, one of the things that it interests me about it is that they're such a great sort of and I'll say alien nemesis, but they're not alien at all. Like their alienness comes from their own manufacturing of, you know, their longevity. And I, I think that's a um, you know, this kids is what happens when you cross your eyes too long. This kids is what happens when you stare at a TV too close. This kids is what happens when you can't put your phone down. Like they are an object lesson in the use of technology. Uh, and I think it's great. I'm, I'm thrilled to hear you say that. That is like, uh, uh, the, the sun just broke through the clouds in this conversation. <laughs> now I, I did have a question though, and I, I doubt even, you know, this, but what were the Baku before? I mean, were they just normal folk? Like, were they, I mean, they're not human, human, technically, I guess. But, I mean, were they seemingly human before they found this planet and ended up living forever? I don't know. And that may be the greatest, uh, the greatest lesson of this film and this story, I have never been interested enough to research it. Well, and that's a problem. The yeah. Baku just aren't that interesting. It's it's a, not only are they just all, you know, a bunch of boring white people, they're just... <laughs> so just, true. There's there's just nothing very exciting about them. Boring, and even with boring Picard, white people, and now they live forever? Are you kidding? <laughs> it is a nightmare. <laughs> it uh, sounds like Sun City. Oh. oh. <laughs> Did I say that? I love my neighbors. I really do. <laughs> <laughs> 
you were saying? Considering some of the other interesting species that they've had in the Star Trek universe, the Baku will not only, at least correct me if I'm wrong, but they've never returned to them. It's like a one-time thing. And we've certainly had plenty of one-time alien species on the show and, and films and everything. It's it's not anything new. But it's just, they're they're really kind of just very milquetoast and generic. I mean, they really aren't anything other than just a, a tribe of Swedes living in the hills, right? I mean, that's basically what we have here, right? <laughs> yes, they're a tribe of Swedes in the in the hills. <laughs> yes, that's exactly right. And they uh, occupy this single village in the Baku planet inside of the Briar Patch. Their population's about six hundred. Uh, apparently, you know, and they tell a little bit of the story in uh, in the film. They originated from this, you know, technologically advanced uh, culture, and they were able to fly through space. And they know all about androids, and that's all really great. Uh, but they, the Baku people that we meet, are the dissidents that left the the planet and found the Briar Patch. And uh, I think that's the, you know, they're the ones that rejected all the technology and the, the Sona are the people who of, are, are a, a subgroup of them. So there were right. there. It's a sub subgroup of the original Baku, and uh, they're the ones that that wanted technology and they wanted to use their phones too much and their parents didn't tell them to stop. <laughs> but that was after they had the effects of the yes. whatever metaphasic particles or whatever. And that's why when they left, they started to deteriorate <laughs> right. and needed to, you know. That's why they needed yeah. all those facelifts. Right. They needed no, it's, the it's really interesting. It is great. Like, I actually, I find it really interesting. I just, it's just a shame that it ended up being kind of uh, lumped into this this story on this boring planet. It It's almost as if they gave us an entire movie of the first contact just the Earth stuff. <laughs> right. <laughs> pretty much. Pretty much. Uh, and it's funny because, as sad as that is to say, like, I, I mean, I didn't find any of the stuff between Picard and the Admiral, uh, what's his name? Uh, Admiral Dougherty. Dougherty, yeah. Um, I didn't find that very exciting. I, I Anything with F. Murray Abraham as Rafo, I found exciting and yeah. a lot more interesting. But, but and I love Anthony Zerby. I just, I, I feel like, the aspect of the story between um, the the uh, Federation and the Enterprise was not very well developed. I feel like, I mean, we, we have this whole subplot where Picard orders Riker and Geordi to take the Enterprise and go back to the Federation and let them know what's going on. And and then it's like I never quite it, it I they don't seem to make it there, but they have a message from them when they come back. So I'm like, did, so what happened here? Uh, it's just like that aspect of the story seemed like it could have used some more development. And I, I think it's always interesting when we cut back to the Federation down in San Francisco and we have some scenes of some people there kind of talking about stuff. And it, I, I feel like we needed a little bit more of that side of the story to really kind of give this whole thing a little more gravitas. What are the other things in the film that you liked? I it, one of the things that you know that I like so much, obviously, is the ship. We get the Enterprise E again, and they show us a little bit more of it. There are some new areas that we get to explore. Obviously, a bathtub, uh, <laughs> which I don't think I, I don't remember seeing in any of the other films. Uh, we also get the captain's yacht, the Cousteau. I love that. Yeah, very cool. Now, this is not the first time we had a uh, we get to see a captain's yacht. It is the first time in the film. The Enterprise D also had a captain's yacht uh, on it. It was called the Calypso, 
and it was built right underneath the saucer section. Uh, this one is, uh, it's much better looking uh, and I think just very cool. And it's like a little baby enterprise. It is. It's like a little baby <laughs> enterprise. It looks great. Uh, and it's, you know, it's combat capable. Obviously, we see it in, in a fight and, and it's uh, it's great. I thought that was a really fantastic bit. And also we have a little um, uh, shuttle dock, I guess you'd call it, up at the top of the ship. Like yeah. before we'd seen the shuttle dock down on the back end of the ship. And now we have one kind of on the backside of the top of the saucer. It's like, oh, that's kind of an interesting place to have a, have the shuttles coming in and out. Yeah. Hadn't seen it before. Yeah, right. Now, you they did mention some other aliens that are not in the film. Uh, and y- you, uh, I, I assume we should get into the uh, Star Trek nerd questions. Yeah, I just had a question because uh, Ruafo brings up, you know, how they had, the Federation was, was, you know, weak and falling apart. And the Borg had attacked them and the Cardassians, uh, not the Kardashians. And the Dominion. <laughs> and all uh, of DS9 is uh, about the Kardashians. <laughs> I want to see that so, movie. Oh. So I wanted some clarification on that. Hey, you know, they would fit right in with the Sona. <laughs> the Sona? Oh, the Sona? Oh. Uh, the, the sauna, no, with all the facelifting oh, going on. Oh, you're right, you're right, because of, I get it now. Now I was late on yeah. that one. Uh, so the Dominion, Andy, uh, this is a big DS9 thing. And in okay. fact, like the last, you know, seasons of DS9 were all about the Dominion. It's a major uh, player. It's it's like they're the federation of the Gamma Quadrant, and they're evil. Uh, and they are they're super, super advanced, super old they're, They have this very strange sort of separation of political power. So uh, they have the these changelings that are the founders. And then they have the uh, uh, they're the they're like the God worshipped uh, group that that is still around these changelings. And then they have the, uh, the another sort of mid-level political uh, humanoid political group called the Vorta. And then the soldiers are the Jem Hadar and they. Uh, are all about imposing this sort of religious order, you know, across the entire universe. Uh, and so that's the Dominion. And, and DS9 was all about the Dominion War and uh, uh, the Dominion, uh, or at least the latter part uh, of the Dominion War. And so um, to mention uh, the, the Dominion in this uh, film is actually just a nod to DS9. And there are a number of nods to DS9, some of which were cut. Uh, in in this film that I think might have have been a bridge too far for fan service if if it isn't too far already. The Cardassians are another group uh, from DS9. In early seasons of DS9, uh, the Cardassians had been in a war with Bajor, and that uh, they have a, a very fragile piece at the start of uh, DS9, uh, where we have a Bajoran. You know, the, the spaceship is is actually, or the not the spaceship, the space station is actually in orbit of the planet Bajor, and uh, the Cardassians have to fly through it. And um, uh, regularly, we have a, a number of Bajorans who are stationed on Deep Space Nine, and then, you know, so it, it is deeply, deeply tied uh, to the lore of, of Deep Space Nine. And, and very, again, I'm, I'm really not sure how Roddenberry would have felt with that, uh, about that stuff, because uh, it, it feels anti-Roddenberry to me. Anyway, that's who they are. Does that make any sense? Am I just rambling now? Yeah, no, no. I, I figured it was somehow tied into the shows in some capacity, yeah. but I just I don't recall having heard of them. I feel like the Cardassians might have been around 
at some point during Next Generation, but I just don't recall them very well. So when you look at the Star Trek cinematic and television universe, they really tied into one another, um, you know, in this this period of Star Trek. Well, so here's a question for you. Um, Obviously, First Contact was seen as a success. I mean, it wasn't as financially successful as it possibly deserved to be, but it was still a success. Do you think that they should have, instead of continuing with with the Next Generation crew, should they have done like a Voyager film or a Deep Space Nine film and kind of explored those worlds a little more? Or do you think that sticking with this direction was the right way to go? I I think they were, um, I I think Voyager, they were limited. I think that would have been a very challenging film to do because Voyager had a discrete destination. Uh, You know, they were sent out into deep, deep space and they needed to find a way home. And the entire show was dedicated to one linear arc, get home. There were little offshoots here, but I think inserting a movie in there would have Mm. distracted from their the central thesis of the show and and that would have been yeah. hard even though in many ways i think the cast and and the characters that they were developing there were some of the most interesting um, of the series i would have loved to have seen it. and i think janeway is one of my very favorite captains in the series i think she's terrific um i also think it was before, ahead of its time i don't i don't think they would have put a, a woman captain on a, a film i think they were just really pushing boundaries uh to put her on television <laughs> you know i think that was we have, we have we have too much to talk about with boobs yeah, in this oh, film. Good it's Lord. like uh, we couldn't have a female yeah, captain exactly. yet. No, Come we're on. totally not ready for that. We're still putting the therapist yeah. in the captain's seat. Um, yes. Right. So uh, the the other uh, it, it, the Deep Space Nine, I think, is a really interesting point because Deep Space Nine does not have that challenge. Deep Space Nine uh, was originally, you know most successful when it was, uh, you know, early on when it was episodic. I think some of their best episodes were just, let what can we tell in a bite-sized, um, you know, notion of the show? Once we get to know the show, we had a lot of fun with these grand story arcs, season-long story arcs that worked really well. But, but I think, um, you know, there is the most fodder because it's a spaceship and or it's a space station, and anyone can come through it. You know, there are so much you can do because it's at the mouth of this wormhole, and you can put anyone there. And and uh, I think it's just great creative fodder for exploration that they just failed. And I also think uh, the uh, Benjamin Sisko, the captain of the or the the I guess I can't remember what they called him, manager <laughs> of the Deep Space Nine, <laughs> is one of the one of the uh, also just a terrific actor. And and I think that's a missed opportunity. So I'm I'm with you. I think that was a, a mistake. And I think you know, if you look at what we've learned in many respects from experiments like tying the the universe of Star Trek together and show and TV and all that when it was really working, uh, is coming into play now um, when we look at how you know Marvel is is you know playing with uh, different tones, different themes for different uh, films and different characters. I think it's a really yeah, good and, thing, and tying so many properties together. Yeah. I mean, it could have been interesting to bring more of the team from uh, the next generation together with the deep space yes. nine team and really kind of develop it in that, uh, in that direction, which, yeah, which is sad. They didn't, and and yeah. now I think because of all the, the IP, you know, challenges, the intellectual property challenges that we have between star Trek versus star Trek. Uh, yeah, right. I, I think we're never going to see that again. That ship is, has sailed. And that that's frustrating because I think there's a lot of opportunity to do really fun things on television that actually tie together. I have not watched discovery yet as we're recording this discovery aired, uh, uh, 
gosh, when did it air? Just Friday, I think it was. It, yeah. it dropped on just a few nights ago. Yeah, and and I haven't watched it yet. Have you had a chance to see it? I have not. No, I'm uh, curious though. Yeah, I'm very curious, and and what I have read about it is generally very positive, and so it makes me much more excited to invest in it a little bit. Um, I I have been watching the Orville, uh, which is the comedy. Uh, the Seth MacFarlane uh, comedy take on Star Trek. And because of the number of Star Trek people involved, man, can you feel the Trek just stinking up the place. It's everywhere <laughs> from the wish of the doors to the, I mean, uniforms, everything. This, this is a show that loves Star Trek. It loves it. Even if the humor is kind of lost, it's a show that adores Star Trek. And I think it's trying to figure out what it is. This is an example of, you know, had had there been a little bit more broad thinking leadership and in how to tie these stories together, we may have had a Star Trek comedy that actually worked as a comedy and was under the auspices of the Star Trek leadership. I, you know, um, too early. Yeah, right. Do you have any other nerd questions? Was that it? I, man, that I was it for got... my nerd questions on this one. Yeah, just okay. that. Uh, let's uh, just a, a brief note on data. Did you find uh, data's turn in this film? Uh, uh, positive or negative. He, we definitely are exploring data as, uh, you know, learning to play. And he has his little Pinocchio kind of relationship with a young boy, a Baku boy. Did it work? Well, I, you know, I was, I was torn with data on this one. Um, I kind of like it. it. It felt like we went back to data from the TV show, you know, kind of that, that sort of thing. And maybe it's because he doesn't have the emotion chip, you know, and he's just, very much just doing his thing. I I, I love, actually, I'm going to step back. I think that the start of this film poses a really interesting mystery, and I love the way that they set that up. It's like, okay, we've got got this pastoral, uh, you know, bunch of people living out in the country. Oh, now we've got some, some people who are kind of spying on these people and watching their every move. We've got them intermixing with them in these invisible suits. And then all of a sudden we have this, this, uh, you know, revolt happening within their ranks, and it turns out to be data. I thought that was a really interesting way to kick this film off, and the reveal of the uh, of the duck blind, as they mm-hmm. as they say. Um, I, I thought, you know, this is a really fun setup. I liked it. I liked that data was kind of, um, you know, going a little haywire. I didn't. I couldn't quite figure out why he went haywire. It says that it was because he got shot. And I guess he got shot because he discovered the lake. Is that, is that what it was? Yeah. Cause I was like, yeah. which, yeah. Okay. Um, so once we figured all that out, I was less exciting about it, uh, less excited about it, but I still really thought that they set it up nicely. Now, once data goes into town and starts hanging out with the kid and trying to kind of show this kid, Hey, you know, technology can be your friend. Uh, you know, I, I was a little bored with a lot of that stuff. I feel like we've just had so much of that stuff happening with Data over the show and over the other episodes that I, I feel like if there was a show that or a, a movie that really kind of gave me more with Data, it was uh, First Contact. I really enjoyed kind of that that exploration with the Borg Queen. And here it's just like I, I feel like we've we're just you know, beating a dead horse by this point, And I just wasn't very interested in it. So, you know, for me, I wish that they had focused on different characters or just focused more on the story. I, I agree with you. I don't want to belabor the point. I think this was an, uh, like an... Yeah, un- I, re- I already did that. Belabored the point. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, I, I do want to say, I, 
I agree with you. I, I think the, uh, the this data story in this particular film is unresolved for me, and uh, it is so disappointing that it started with such a wonderful open. I was so thrilled with how this this set up the the Heart of Darkness story. I mean, this could have been our the the start to our journey up the river, and instead it was cut down to a couple of scenes, and I, it was disappointing that we didn't get more of that in favor of fan service and and kind of cheap humor thank god oh thank god data is a flotation device Uh, (laughs) i'm sort of of done with that kind of stuff and and of course you know on this idea of humor we do have the the boobs firming up and i think this may be the only mention of boobs in the star trek universe uh i'm not sure i've heard it anywhere else it's it was uh did it did it work for you i will say i when when the scene first happened I you know I rolled my eyes like oh geez you're kidding me, but then Data said it and I actually laughed out loud because it was I wasn't actually expecting him <laughs> to repeat that. So I will say as much as I didn't appreciate them you know just going to that level it's not like it's a you know bad place to go but it just it's like it just didn't feel like Star Trek all of a sudden yeah um, but it still made me laugh. It, I I agree. Um, I will say one thing on Marina Sirtis. I think I am enjoying her more in every film. Uh, I, yeah, I, I, I agree with you on that count. Yeah, yeah. As long as, I, I mean, I think she's finding in terms of her character, what they do with her is sometimes puzzling. But in, in terms of her and her performance and her embodiment of the character, it's it's unfortunate that I feel like she didn't really reach that peak of figuring out who she is and maturing into uh, Troy until so late in, in her run. Uh, because I think for her, this is still, I, I this is one of the best, uh, you know, performances she's she's given. Well, and I feel like they were struggling trying to figure out what to do with her. It's like, what are you going to do with a counselor on board? All you can do is go and talk and spill your emotions. It, you, you, That gets played out really quickly. And so they were always trying, I felt like they were always trying to find new things to do with her because they're like, well, we can only do that so long. And so I, I enjoyed that they were doing some other things, but it's like, you know, uh, Dr. Crusher got to go off and, and head the, you know, the academy or what the medical academy at the Federation or whatever. And I, you know, I, I just didn't feel like they, it was an interesting addition of a character, kind of the, the, the psychologist and as an empath. But at the same time, it was like, I don't know if they, thought that through completely before they wrote that character. Yeah, because how much empathing has she done in the last couple of movies, <laughs> right? Right. I, I don't have a whole lot on history backstory. I feel like we've, we've kind of gone into that, If you unless you have anything else. I do want to say that the ILM didn't do this film. They made a... a, a no. <laughs> <laughs> uh, there was a, a an interesting merger between Blue Sky and VIFX. It was short-lived and it apparently didn't, didn't go very well. Uh, it was by coastal and the coasts never quite merged but they did have this film under their belts uh and uh they they did all all the effects were done cg with the exception of one flyby when the ship is on fire at the end that was a reshoot uh that that was not done cg how do you think the film looked in terms of the effect shots it was really disappointing. I felt like they took a step back. And I know they'd worked with Blue Sky on the TV show, but yeah. it felt like TV show. Yeah. Like nothing stood out. And, you know, part of me was like, well, it's because there's so much of it in daylight. You know, they're flying around the planet all the time. And uh, but I, I can't I can't completely say that either because there are times when we're watching the ships fly around in the nebula and I'm like, Ugh, man, this is the best they could come up yeah. with. 
they had done such great work on some of the previous films. This one is a real step down effects-wise. For well, me. and I should say, Santa Barbara Studios did all the outer space stuff, including the nebula and and that kind of work. Um, and, you know, also had, had more experience on, um, you know, Trek from the, the TV show. Um, but, you know, you can kind of tell it didn't it didn't quite work. It wasn't their sort of best effects. And Blue Sky has gone on to, to really focus on feature animation, obviously, and has done some great work there. And the company uh, ended up splitting up. So um, anyhow, uh, is what it is. I'm with you. I still think the ship looked good. That's about the, the highlight. And the stuff on the planet, you know, the phaser blast didn't even line up. Like, it wasn't a straight line from from the <laughs> muzzle of the phaser to the target. It was like more of a connect the dots, kind of a raster curve. And I, I was not a fan of of that kind of stuff. No, I wasn't either. It was, uh, it, it was pretty subpar for me. Let's do the deep scene dive, Andy. Let's do it. So at this point in the film, uh, the Federation has uh, ordered Picard to gather up his people and get all the data on data over to Admiral Doherty and get out of the briar patch because they got some stuff to do. But of course, Picard et al. has already discovered the hollow ship uh, underwater in the lake. And uh, so we are talking about the scene uh, where our three principals are confronting one another, Admiral Doherty, Picard, and and Murray. <laughs> <laughs> Murray. F. Murray Abraham's uh, Ruafo uh, d- are discussing the Prime Directive, the hollow ship, and the forced migration of the happy hippie people in order to strip mine the fountain of youth and destroy the planet. Also, Ruafu's head splits, which is awesome. <laughs> so great. <laughs> no! <laughs> Uh, so I love why did, I love F. Murray Abraham right? in this movie. It's a little bit disappointing that he's not in this particular scene uh, for the duration of the scene. Much of this is a com- is a conversation between uh, Picard and Doherty. Uh, but uh, why don't you sing the praises of of uh, Abraham before he leaves? Quick. I well, I think that he's an actor who knows how to act big and when it's appropriate to act big. And obviously, when you're wearing a lot of makeup. You need to act a little bigger just to kind of get through that makeup. But, I mean, as this character, as Ruafo, he just delights in in this um, just over-the-topness that he's constantly displaying. It's so much fun to watch him. And we've got this fantastic moment where he comes in and, and uh, Picard, I can't remember what Picard actually says, but he's just like, you know, we're not going to leave. We, we've got some stuff to figure out here. And he's just like... No, and and watching his head split. I mean, it's just like it's so fantastic as the uh, the effects and the blood starts kind of like pussing out of his head. It's just disgusting, but brilliant. So uh, yeah, I I think he was a, a great choice to bring into this film. I mean, he not only does he work the makeup really well, but he just plays his character. Uh, just so maliciously and brilliantly. I think he is a highlight of this film. I do too. I, I think he's terrific. Um, the, the I actually like the the conversation itself too. I think in terms of how it it is written, this is it's one of those central scenes where we we have to understand what the ethical moral challenge is here, and and we learn uh, because Picard has has discovered the the hollow ship. We we learn that uh, no. Oh, they're not going to leave. Yes, Picard is going to stand in the way of what the Federation is doing. Picard learns, in fact, that it's the Federation that that uh, Darty is there on Federation orders to make sure that this happens. That that this horrible, you know, forced migration 
takes place and that they're able to mine the planet's uh, uh, powers of youthfulness. And metaphasic the particles. metaphasic particles, we have to we have to walk out of this scene knowing all of that in order to to sort of attempt to buy in to to Picard's, uh, you know, moment, his big moment where he takes the pips off his collar and puts them in a close up on the table. Um, that ends up being sort of uh, the, the punchline to the the dramatic joke that is this scene. Um, and uh, and I think overall it, it works. You're looking well, Jean-Luc. Rested. I won't let you move them, Admiral. I will take this to the Federation Council. I'm acting on orders from the Federation Council. How can there be an order to abandon the Prime Directive? The Prime Directive doesn't apply. These people are not indigenous to this planet. They were never meant to be immortal. We'll simply be restoring them to their natural evolution. Who the hell are we to determine the next course of evolution for this people? Jean-Luc. There are 600 people down there. We'll be able to use the regenerative properties of this radiation to help billions. The Sonar have developed a procedure to collect the metaphasic particles from the planet's rings. A planet in Federation space. That's right. We have the planet, they have the technology. A technology we can't duplicate. You know what that makes us? Partners. Anthony Zerby as uh, Admiral Darty, he's kind of he's kind of flat throughout the course of the film. He starts out as kind of you know maniacally uh, he's maniacal, but he doesn't even seem like he cares all that much. And when it's finally outed that he's been wronged and he's standing in the middle of the bay uh, with all of the you know prisoners. Uh, he says, "Oh, I, I, I didn't know what to. I didn't know. I, I just didn't know." He's exactly the same sort of emotional tenor as he was at the beginning of the film, I, and and this scene, uh, I think, caps, capitalizes on that. He, there, there's no intensity in his defense of his efforts. Yeah, exactly. And again, going back to my problems with the story, I really feel like they could have used more of a connection with the actual Federation in this because leaving it just to Doherty really kind of leaves it flat. And if he's our sole representation of everything the Federation stands for, it's just not that exciting. Yeah. Yeah. And that's really unfortunate because I think Patrick Stewart is capable of making this a very exciting scene. And I think he, he you can feel it. You can feel like he's bouncing up against a very low headroom of the story. You know, how can there be an order to abandon the prime directive? This is a thing that we have learned over the last seven years of the show is the most the principle behind which he stands the firmest, right? And uh, and so when Doherty presents him with that line, the prime directive doesn't apply. These people are not indigenous to this world. They were never meant to be immortal. We're simply restoring natural evolution. You can tell that, that you know, Picard is struggling a little bit with that, uh, and yet he does not you know, falter from his defense of the prime directive. I think that's a, I, I love the intention of the scene. I just, I, I struggle that it was, it was not quite delivered. We are betraying the principles upon which the Federation was founded. It's an attack upon its very soul and it will destroy the Baku. Just as cultures have been destroyed in every other forced relocation throughout history. Jean-Luc. We're only moving 600 people. How many people does it take, Admiral, 
before it becomes wrong. Hmm? Thousand. Fifty thousand. A million. How many people does it take, Admiral? I'm ordering you to the Goran system. I'm also ordering the release of the sonar officers. File whatever protest you wish to, Captain. By the time you do, this will all be done. Well, here's a question I, I pose to you, Pete. Oh, uh, uh, please, sir. Thinking about this whole notion of the Prime Directive and what it's standing for, and I was like, okay, so... so to a certain extent, Admiral Doherty has a point, right? This isn't the, these people's world. They've stumbled across it, and they've decided to make it home. And it happens to be the fountain of youth that can kind of, you know, help everybody. Okay, so if instead of uh, when when Picard arrives and they come down and, and it's just this tranquil, happy place of all these wonderful hippies just hanging out and and being happy, and Picard didn't fall in love. Instead of all that, say that they come down, and it's like a malicious little group of antagonists who are fighting against them and trying to, you know, shoot them for taking away the the uh, this this fountain of youth that they have discovered, and they were hoarding. Um, where would the prime directive fall? It seems to me that in in that particular storyline. They would say, "Whoa, these people! This is not their world, and they are—they're keeping everybody else from this. We need to actually stop these people from uh, from hoarding this, so that again, going back to the the you know what we've heard several times in this franchise, you know, the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few. We need to get rid of this this horde of pirates who have stolen this fountain of youth." And and allow everybody to have, uh, you know, the benefits of this. It pretty much destroys the logic behind the movie uh, Completely. In the, in, in, at the hands of a love story. Exactly. That's another issue I have with this is like, I don't think the prime directive is all that wrong in this particular case, because it's like, I mean, the, it's not these people's world. Why is it okay to to uh, for Picard to say, "Hey, these people have a right to be here," if they're just nice people? But I guarantee, if this was a story about people who were on the world who were who were angry, mean like pirates hoarding this place, it would be a fight to get rid of them. Well, this is so. There are two questions. The first is when does it become uh, when does it become their planet, right? When is it their home world? Sure. They've been there for three hundred years, right? Or, or sure, because less they're on the fountain of youth. Because they're yes. on the fountain they're, of youth. They don't, they don't naturally live that long. They're only there no, that they long don't. because of that. But, but they were there for that long. Is it when does it become their planet? They're in there. Sure. You know, how long does it take? Uh, you know, when does it? When when do I become a native of three hundred and one uh, years? <laughs> <laughs> You were not born and raised in in Phoenix, are you? When do you, you know? Are you ever? Do you ever become a native? Is that three hundred year mark stand for you? Uh, so I, I asked that question first, uh, and and does that apply? And and second, would it have been a more interesting story had Picard had to come to the defense of the Prime Directive, uh, it protecting a bunch of jerks? That definitely makes it more interesting. I would have loved to have watched that story, but uh, you know. Probably wouldn't have been as great a love story. 
Well, I mean, and thinking about your your first question, like when do you become a native? I mean, you could say that of rabbits in Australia. You know, it's like they lived yeah. there for an awfully long time, but they weren't a native species, and they were destroying the native species. Now, if it was a story where okay, you've got these people who live there who, yeah, they were they've lived there for three hundred some years, but they also happen to be destroying the native species. You know, then where would the where would the federation fall? Like if there was like a native fauna or something <laughs> that was actually dying because of the you know the, because the, of the Baku, the, they're there. The Baku, yeah. yeah, right. No, that's a good point. They're actually the federation. The entire foundation of the federation's argument should be to protect a fern. That would have been a exactly. movie I would love to watch. I, exactly. Yeah. No, it's it, all, all I'm saying is that it poses an interesting question, and it just it it to me speaks to some of the the foundational um, problems that this script has is that I just don't think that it was written as strongly as it needed to be to tell this effective story. Totally agree with you there. We already mentioned Matthew Leonetti uh, behind the camera. Uh, anything of note uh, in this scene? Not really. It was pretty, uh, pretty standard. Um, I, you know, some of the nice the little camera moves kind of emphasizing characters as they would step forward into the lens or as they would lead the camera as it would pan around them. Nothing too fancy. It just, as I, as I looked at the different shots again, I'm like, it seems pretty safe, you know, and that's, that's kind of what I felt with this particular scene. Um, you know, I will say, uh, tying camera work with, uh, some of the effects. It doesn't. We don't run into it in this particular scene, but there are scenes in the um, the Sonas main ship, mm-hmm. and also when we go on to the um, the the collector. Mm-hmm. Um, both of those, they have like these these intensely blue windows, like throughout their their um, areas. And all I could think of when I was looking at them was like, did they forget to replace the blue screen? Because it's like. Just a solid, solid blue, like blue screen blue. Yeah. Why Why is it lit this way? And why did they decide to set it up this way? I, I was really kind of struggling with that as a look. I'm glad that we don't have it in this scene because we're on the Enterprise, but it was something that I really struggled yeah, with. Yeah, I think that's I, I think that's a great point. I thought the same thing. Um it it didn't didn't look great. Uh Herman Zimmerman uh is back behind production design, and again, I he he's amazing. And so you you can't fault him for you know the sets. Which room are we in? In this, we're in the captain's scene? ready room. The ready room. Okay. Yeah, and it's not a you know this has never been a real standout set. You know, well, it's like his office. Yeah, basically. yeah. It's, it's just it's off yeah, the side of the bridge, and, and it's where he goes for people, his yeah. private time. It's the gotcha. it's the little okay. room right uh, uh, right outside of the Oval Office in the White House. You know that the president's wait, wait, wait. actual office is. So is this the same room that he had the fight with uh, with Lily and and he has the wall of the no. the little Enterprise models? No. no. So what was that room? Because nope. I thought that was that's like their the conference observation deck. Like there's a big conference table in that room, and or he's sitting at the oh. end of this conference table in that room, working right. on one of his things, and and it is lined with a statue of all of the Enterprise ships. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So that's a different, different room. room. Gotcha. Different room. Okay. Um, so, but but it's still. I mean, it's this is not a great uh, a standout <laughs> exemplar of Zimmerman's well, work, but it it's the Enterprise. Looks good. It's the Enterprise. I mean, there were elements of the film that I thought he did nicely. I wasn't overwhelmed by the sets for the Baku village. 
Um, it it weirdly, I know they built this huge village and uh, you know made it look like I I can't remember what part of California, but they built this giant village. But as I looked at it, it always just looked kind of small and not that exciting. And I I wish that it was something that spoke to me more as a little more Star Trekian, I guess. Of the village, not Tuscany. Yeah, the village. Right, exactly. (laughs) Right, right, exactly. Not like I was on vacation over in Europe or something. Right, that's definitely what it felt like. Um, The uh, Jerry Goldsmith is back. Your man, yeah, he's got he's got a nice little bit of of music in this particular scene that just kind of emphasizes the particular fight that Picard has with uh, Doherty about you know how many people is it going to take you know is it a thousand is it fifty thousand I like that's a really great scene I like what Picard is doing here and I think that Goldsmith really does a great job of emphasizing some of the stuff going on here this is a really strong score I actually really like the the themes for the Baku. Just like all of the stuff that he does here, it's beautiful, beautiful music. Um, and and I, I think that this scene it doesn't necessarily kind of hit the high notes for the great themes that he has, but it, it's effective in what it's doing. I think it is. Do you get the feeling that maybe Jerry Goldsmith has more fun writing the music than than a lot of the people in making the movie? Like, I, <laughs> <laughs> like in some cases, I felt like the movie just does not live up to to the score. No, I completely agree. That is so that sad. Quite a quite a bit. Yeah, I mean, I think he does such an amazing job. It just it's it just really sings to me. I just love it. Yep, I agree. We've covered a lot of stuff uh, in terms of other highlights. Anything else we, before we jump into our final our closers? As far as Jonathan Frakes as the director goes, I mean, I think that he has some some directing skills that I like. Listening to him talk about this film is actually kind of funny because it seems like he has a lot of problems with it too. And I, I feel like it was just, it, I to, for me, this one all comes back to the story. I just don't think that that uh, that our man uh, Pillar really had a great story. But I do think Frakes does some nice stuff, um, you know, here and there throughout the film. But I, I don't think he quite hit it out of the park as much as he did with First Contact. But I do still think that he's doing some interesting stuff with his directing. I think so, too. It's interesting that he is, uh, he, he directed episode five of The Orville, uh, which is as yet unaired. We just hit episode three, I think, this week. Uh, so a couple of weeks, we'll be able to see Jonathan Frakes in the chair of a Star Trek-esque uh, 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 series, and uh, he has just been announced today that he's been added to the directing ranks of Star Trek Discovery, um, uh, which we already mentioned. So it'll be interesting to see what happens as he jumps back into the the Star Trek and Star Trek ish fray. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, one of the uh, you know speaking again of nods to Deep Space Nine, one of the cut sequences, which I don't think was on the directors uh, or the uh, uh, deleted scenes. Uh, certainly not on my version, was a, a clip of Armin Shimmerman, who plays Quark, uh, who shows up at the end of the film to, Quark uh, on DS9, uh, shows up to build a casino. He says he's very excited he's going to build a casino and, you know, everybody's going to live forever and it's it's going to be great. And Picard, everybody knows who he is. He's a Ferengi. They're all about the greed. Uh, Picard shuts him down and assigns Worf to deal with him. And Worf says, oh, sir, must we? Because, of course, he knows uh, uh, Quark from Deep Space Nine, and that is yet more fan service that I think was probably uh, wisely cut. Uh, it, it's a bummer because I really like Armin Shimmerman. I th- every time he shows up somewhere, I'm I'm in. He was the the principal in one season of Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Uh, 
pretty sure you know, he wasn't. I don't think he was the one that was eaten by the students who thought they were dogs. But anyway, um, he's great. He's someone to, <laughs> to look out for. Those are the guys with the really like big ears. Yeah, right? big, and they're they're the ears are their most uh, sensitive erogenous zones. So anytime somebody <laughs> touches their ears, they get all you know frisky. That's that's, that's where they want to be rubbed all the time. So it's, <laughs> that's it's very really funny. funny. Uh, so tell me about Star Trek posters. So I, I was looking through all the different posters because uh, you know it's just one of those things that I do. It's your way. <laughs> I, and I, I I think it was actually pretty interesting to note. This is just kind of a weird little note that all of the posters. Uh, there's at least one poster for every film um, that has been made uh, for the various franchise thus far. That. Uh, for each one of them, where it features a, a a ship flying through space. Now, this one, the Star Trek Insurrection poster, looks awfully like kind of an a flipped version of Star Trek VI: The Undiscovered Country. That one had kind of a, a you know a, a Klingon's face on the bottom of the frame and the Enterprise up at the top of the frame. Um, this one has the the Sona up at the top of the frame and then the planet down at the bottom of the frame. Uh, it was kind of an odd little flip, but. Of all of the different posters that there are for the various Star Trek films, there's only one film that does not feature a ship at all. Do you have any idea which one that is? It's. I, I should. I, I actually. I think it's actually two. Uh, no, it's it's one. There's only one. There's only one, and it's of just the next generation ones. Now, of all of the all 13 the Star, Star Trek Treks films that doesn't only one a ship does not feature a ship flying uh I was I would say the voyage home no they actually have uh you know the uh uh the um bird of prey flying under the oh, uh, right of course uh, under the uh the bridge uh that's a that's an excellent point um how about wait wait for it well it's nemesis <laughs> it's nemesis. I, I it's it, I don't know if that speaks to the film or what. We'll certainly talk about this next week, but I find it interesting that every film, you know, has I I won't say a highlight, but always at least features a ship flying in space. And for some reason, Nemesis is the one where they decided we're not going to show a ship flying at all. They needed the silhouette and the Tom Hardy and the knife uh, above his head. Exactly. Yeah. Right. That's what they needed. Fascinating. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Random little tidbit, uh, but I do like the insurrection poster. I, yeah. I like the the kind of that face kind of floating up in the sky. Yeah, me it's too. pretty haunting looking. How to do it award season? This film wasn't exactly a big splash at uh, <laughs> in the world of awards. It did have three wins and eight nominations. Nothing too exciting. Just some some random little awards that that didn't uh, you know like the uh, online film and television association or the Hugo Awards. So nothing, nothing really that uh, that was crazy exciting. At the Saturn Awards, um, the Academy of Science Fiction, Fantasy, and Horror Films, it did get a Best Science Fiction Film nomination, though. Um, it lost to, it was a tie, actually, for Armageddon and Dark City. Those two films won. I think that's funny in retrospect to think that Armageddon... <laughs> I can't believe that's in the same sentence. Uh, I know, it's, it's Dark City. Uh, but anyway, it, this one lost to that tie. And then Michael Westmore once again lost his uh, makeup award uh, to Vampires, John Carpenter's Vampires of all things, which I just rewatched recently and it still is pretty terrible. So um, <laughs> sad to see uh, him lose because uh, I think that the Sona, like I already said, 
are just fantastic. Too bad. What what about the budget? Did it I mean obviously they ended up making another film after this, but did it really earn it? Well, this team was in the middle of this successful series of films and uh, Paramount did up their budget giving them 70 million or 103.6 in today's dollars. As before, the budgets keep going up, but they still have yet to beat out the first film from 1979. Insurrection again opened during the holiday season, hitting theaters on December 11th, 1998. Opposite everyone's favorite, Michael Keaton's Jack Frost. <laughs> oh, man. Uh, needless to say, it easily took the number one spot that week. But then it dropped to, to fourth the following week when new releases You've Got Mail and The Prince of Egypt, along with A Bug's Life in its fifth week, pushed it down. It left the top 10 after just four weeks and went on to make $70.2 million domestically and $47.6 million internationally for a total in today's dollars of $174.3 million. It ended up with an adjusted profit per finish minute of 686835 making it the worst profit for a Star Trek film so far, except for number five. That one still costs less, though, so this actually is the least profitable Star Trek film thus far, making it not even two times its budget back. Still, it was good enough, apparently, for one more go with the TNG team, though it's going to be a four-year gap before we get back to it next time. Uh, well... Uh, it, I, I don't know. I still, this conversation has not uh, swayed me from my position that this film is unjustly maligned in many ways. I still had fun uh, watching this film. I would actually watch it again before I would watch Kingsman 2. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but it's just Star Trek. It is inconsequential in terms of the uh, the overall arc of the series. Uh, but uh, I, I had a surprisingly uh, better time watching this film than I expected. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I didn't, it, this was just really felt very middling to me. You know, I, I, I uh, it, it didn't wow me. Um, it didn't, uh, it didn't, I, I didn't hate it. My recollection was that I'd kind of hated this one, but I ended up going, you know what? It wasn't bad. It's just kind of forgettable. And I think that for me, that's its biggest crime. But it does have the sona. I think we agree on that. It's not forgettable, right? His he breaks his own Absolutely. forehead with rage. That's awesome. That. Uh, yes. All right, Andy. I think it's time for us to rank it. Let's do it. Head over to flickchart.com slash the next reel, and uh, it, you can see uh, the list of movies that we have ranked really meticulously over the years. And, uh, you know, if you just swipe over in your podcast app of choice to our show notes, you will see uh, the link to this film in Flickchart. You can just jump right over there and add it to your own list. Let's see how it stacks up. What's first? First up, we have Star Trek Insurrection or Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? Definitely Oh Brother. That's an easy one to start with, yeah. Star Trek Insurrection or Atlantic City. Oh, dear. Jeez, I don't remember how we felt about Atlantic City. I remember we liked it. It was um, a little slow, my recollection, yeah. but I enjoyed the characters quite a bit. And there is that whole lemon juice. It's boobs. It's a boobs movie. <laughs> I'm going to say Atlantic City. I'll say Atlantic City, too. Star Trek Insurrection or Stripes? <laughs> um, oh, do we have to watch all of Stripes? Uh, the, right, exactly. You know, I'm going to go with Star Trek Insurrection. Okay. It's, you know... Yeah. It'll occupy more time. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> uh, Star Trek Insurrection or From Hell. I think Star Trek Insurrection. I ended up enjoying From Hell more on this last watch. So I'm going to say From Hell. Um. All right, I'll give it to you. You know what? I just, at this point, <laughs> that's not a sword I'm going to fall on. 
<laughs> uh, Star Trek Insurrection or My Dinner with Andre? Star Trek Insurrection. <laughs> I would say My Dinner with Andre uh, because it has more going for it, but I, I still have to go with Insurrection. <laughs> yes. Despite its issues. It's, it's, it's middle ground for me. Star Trek Insurrection or Ninochka? I'm going to go with Insurrection yes, on this one. Yes, Insurrection, please. Star Trek Insurrection or Black Christmas? Jeez. <laughs> uh, I'm going to say Insurrection. I think I am, too. That surprises me. Yeah, it surprises me, too. <laughs> Star Trek Insurrection or Postmortem? Little Pablo R- Lorraine. Uh, insurrection. Insurrection. Yeah. Well, Pete, that puts it at number 260 on our chart out of 318. There you go. Well, it's not high. It's not high. It's, it's you know, in the uh, lower 20%. But, you know, I don't think that's bad, I guess. I mean, I feel like we've talked about so many great films that I feel like, you know what, it's it's not going to end up in the uh, the highest slot, but I think it's okay. Yeah. All right. What where did you uh, what does this do for you on your uh personal list? I I looked at my personal list and it was at, at about uh 2000 it was in the 2000s um and I re-ranked it and it ended up almost in the exact same spot. So 2085 is where it's landing out of 3814. So it's at about 55%, which fits for me feeling so middling with it. Yeah, mine's actually a little bit further uh, from you. It's six thirty-one out of nine ninety-seven, and and so that puts it really in the the bottom uh, uh, section of my list, uh, which is interesting. It says I should rate it elsewhere at two stars based on this this ranking, and I'm I'm a pretty solid. <laughs> listen to me, I'm a pretty solid two and a half. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> on this film so uh, but i am going to give it a heart i i would watch it uh, uh i would watch it again it doesn't set me into a a cold rage um but uh but it was it was fine yeah i think that's where i land with this is at a two and a half with a like it's it's like i said it's a very middle ground star trek i can enjoy it but there's a lot of stuff that i also don't like with it yeah um and i just i'm gonna have to take the good with the bad with this one um but it has some really interesting elements that I really enjoy. And if I get to watch uh, Murray be uh, <laughs> the most fascinating Star Trek character that, that I just love, then I will definitely check him yeah, out again. I think so, too. Um, it, I struggle a little bit because of just where my flick chart uh, rankings are. Because on my initial uh, ranking, this came in below Generations. And that's not good. That's not good at all. <laughs> uh, because that should not that should not be the case and and thankfully uh you know i i got to re-rank it and it ended up down there with borat generations did so <laughs> what a relief <laughs> uh so anyway what we are we're wrapping up our next gen collection of star trek films where do we go from here yeah we'll be jumping four years to star trek nemesis that's what we'll be talking about 2002 film from director Stuart Baird. It'll be an interesting one to chat about. Um, this is one I don't have fond memories of. And so I'm really curious to uh, revisit it and see if it's as bad as I remember or better or worse. Oh, that's really funny. I actually have even better memories of this one. <laughs> really? Yeah. Oh, I think I really like Tom Hardy. I think oh. he makes this film for me. Oh, it's been a long time. I can't wait. <laughs> I can't wait for you to be wrong. 
you you're go. gonna love it. That's my prediction. You're gonna. This is gonna be your new favorite. That is, you think so? I think so, Andy. Well, I, I think so. I feel like it. It's it's one that uh, gives me the odd craving for the blood of a live Conar beast. <laughs> I don't know how that fits in our tagline, Andy. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. Amazon giveth, Andy. As Amazon always doeth. Uh, we're both in the bottom of the barrel. You do it. You kick it off. One. Okay. Uh, when you rely on shtick to keep going, it's time to take a hard look at the franchise, says a customer in 1999 who purchased this on DVD. Probably the most irksome characterization was that of Worf, who has since inception undergone a journey of self-discovery, fallen hero, resurrected man of honor, and now a foil for acne jokes in Insurrection. For our next movie, (laughs) Deep Space Nine, anyone? I feel like I need to amend. Please. (laughs) There you go. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. What's yours? Mine is a one star by Shane, who says, not that great. I did not like the plot of this movie. And some of the actors did not do a good job. <laughs> That's like a mystery. I know. Who, who but, is he but thinking? I won't of? tell you. Who. <laughs> uh, there, some of these one stars are really are really uh, lame. It speaks like to the, like uh, like the one that is titled one star, and the comment is lame. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, oh dear. Oh yes. Well. As always, thanks, Amazon. You know what I got the other day, Pete? Stephen King's latest. Want to borrow it? Do you know who you're talking to? What do you mean? Andy, when's the last time I read a paper book? It's been like decades. I would much rather use Kindle, or better yet, Audible. What am I thinking? I don't read paper books anymore either. I am an audiobook guy all the way. For those of you looking to listen to the books behind the films we talk about here on The Next Reel, get a free audiobook download and 30-day free trial at thenextreel.com slash audible okay we're gonna play a little game i'm gonna name a series from season seven and you try to guess how many movies from it were adaptations <laughs> nice i own this game we shall see here we go starting with an easy one the millennium trilogy <laughs> seriously the girl with the dragon tattoo the girl who played with fire the girl who kicked the hornet's nest die hard uh well die hard one and two except nothing lasts forever which is where die hard came from isn't on audible what? Crime of the century! Okay, 1968 musicals. Uh, Mary Poppins. Nice. We've covered a lot of great movies that started as books. Books like East of Eden, Giant. Or All You Zombies, upon which Predestination was based. So many great movies from so many great sources, and they're all on Audible. Producing this podcast is a lot of fun, but takes a lot of time. We've dropped the dynamically inserted ads because they're so annoying and have no connection to our content. Plus, they just jam those things in wherever they see fit. We listened to you when you said you didn't like them, so now we're directly appealing to you, our dear listener. Please consider an Audible subscription to help support The Next Reel and our family of podcasts. I have been using Audible along with my family for decades now. I love it, and I have read hundreds of books through it. 
I couldn't be more pleased with their service, and I know you'll love it too. Head to thenextreel.com slash audible and get your free trial. It really helps us out, and you have a world of over 200,000 audiobooks open to you. So much great material available. Dive in with a free 30-day trial at thenextreel.com slash audible. Start listening to amazing audiobooks of your favorite movie source material with your first free audiobook today. That's thenextreel.com slash audible. Thank you.